When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to E2 Entrepreneurs Expose, the podcast where I get to interview some of the most interesting pioneers in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my conversation with Nicole Verkint. Nicole is the founder and CEO of the OMX. She is on the board of the Canadian Crown Corporation and the Peter Monk School of Global Affairs. A dragon on Canada's next-gen Dragon's Den, Nicole was also the winner of Canada's National Woman Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2017. So happy to have Nicole on the podcast. It was a great chat. Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Nicole. Nicole, thanks for coming on. I guess I'll start out by asking you what OMX does. Say you're at a dinner party, it's a layman. How do you answer that question? (laughs) Yeah, I'm the life of a dinner party, I have to tell you, when I start talking about procurement software. At a high level, it's really a procurement software for organizations that want to buy locally. So, I mean, that's the easiest way to describe it. It's a buy local procurement platform. But it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. When I started it, and my first startup was in a manufacturing business that sold to governments, and there was this very, or still is, this very complicated policy uh, that requires government contractors to track the exact local content throughout their supply chains and report it back to the government that they're selling to. And then incentivizing those companies to increase their supply chain, various different supply chain metrics, such as percentage of small business, percentage from each region across a country, percentage of indigenous or aboriginal and there's a whole bunch of different targets depending on the country depending on the policy depending on what type of procurement they've been working in so it can be very complicated and the interesting part and one of the major trends is that we're seeing more and more of this desire for the government to increase the amount of economic benefits that they get from the spending that they're having with their government contractors but at, at a high level it's just a procurement platform that focuses on buying local but it really, really drills into multiple tiers in a supply chain to be able to really figure out how local something is and to provide all of that reporting that's required That's that tends to be quite complicated and requires a lot of collaboration within multiple tiers of a supply chain. So hundreds of companies would have to be able to report in on certain metrics to manage one program. We're basically replacing extremely complicated Excel models and Mm -hmm. hiring of consultants to call up hundreds of suppliers and ask them questions and fill out forms and, you know, printers and faxes and all that kind of stuff. I know you guys started out in the defense sector. Are there any other sectors that you guys focus on? 
Well, we got started in the defense sector because they had the most stringent regulations when it came to having to fulfill their by local requirements. There was legal obligations, financial penalties. So they had the strictest obligations, but we've been finding almost the exact same thing in energy. So if a pipeline gets approved or various different energy related projects, then the government requires certain by local. And there's lots of agreements that are made with local indigenous and So energy is a big sector for us. Mining is a huge sector as well all around the world. And we're seeing that trending upwards, especially in places like Africa and South America, where countries need to see what the local benefits will come from that company's supply chain before approving the mine. And then infrastructure. So, you know, if we're going to build a road or we're going to spend government money on major infrastructure projects, what kind of return are we going to get within our economy and society? They usually want social benefits, too from what that company's going to buy to build that project. So, you know, defense and aerospace were the two most obvious. Energy, mining, and infrastructure are kind of the next most obvious. As we continue to see, you know, an increase, the increased rhetoric going towards more protectionism, you know, with started with Trump, and obviously we've seen it in Europe, and we're starting to see more and more of that around the world. I think we're going to see just a more general desire to understand the local content in a lot of different products. And so I think it could go even wider where you could say, you know, there was the famous case of the air conditioning company when Trump found out that it was really made in Mexico and he went on a tire, you know, a rant on Twitter. You know, we we could start to say, well, how how American is this air conditioner? Or, you know, if if the Mexican government owns a part of this or subsidizes this, you know, how much of the supply chain or content or how many jobs is it really are really being created in Mexico from this this product. So it could go wider just based on some of the trends that we're seeing and some of the rhetoric, again, that we're seeing in the language that's coming out of some of our political leaders. I don't know how deep yeah. it's going to go, but when you're talking about it in that light, it's usually more referred to as just country of origin tracking or you know how much local content really is there in a product. You mentioned your first startup in the manufacturing sector, but I want to stick with OMX for a second. Do you remember the moment when you decided that you needed to launch the company? Well, I got fired, so I sold the company to a private equity firm and thought I'd be working for them for many years and didn't work out. And I literally thought I I need to start something else. And so the only sector I had a really deep understanding of was government procurement. So my first startup had bid on a U.S. Department of Defense contract and was a supplier to a company that had that contract and was basically manufacturing some products offshore. And so I understood government contracting. I understood the paperwork that had to be filled out. I understood the incentives these companies had to source locally. And, you know, at that time, I'd been in that startup for uh, five years. And so I was 27. And it was pretty much all I knew. But I also knew technology and just from using it. You know, so I was using LinkedIn. I was using Facebook. I was using, there was a product on the automotive side that I use sometimes called mfg.com, which was a very early e-procurement solution. Uh, So I was using all those tools and I thought, why are we doing all this tracking and reporting? And, you know, you know, the defense and government contracting sector was using brokers and paying brokers big percentages just to connect them up with suppliers and provide the tracking. And I thought, this is crazy. And so I always thought it was crazy and I always was frustrated by it. And then, you know, the real aha moment. I don't, I don't think entrepreneurs really have aha moments. I think that they sort of muddle through ideas over a period of time and built up frustration and that sort of thing. But if you wanted to pinpoint it an aha moment, it was just, 
I suddenly departed the company I thought I would be at for longer and just needed something else to do. And so I just picked a sector that I knew and that I was kind of always frustrated by and applied stuff that I was using in my day-to-day sort of consumer life and applied it to what I believed was a really old and traditional industrial sector. There's still lots of areas of the economy where it's like that, where you could apply stuff that we're seeing in other areas to make it more efficient. Last year, you guys were awarded a NATO Innovation Award. You're now experiencing solid growth. But what were the first, say, year or two like at OMX when you got started? Well, we skidded on the runway for a while. It was horrible. The first couple of years... I mean, it was exciting and, you know, big dreams and you're going to dominate the world. And, but it was very difficult. Uh, it was a lot more difficult than my first startup. My first startup, we had a contract in hand and we just had to manufacture products for cheaper. And it, that was, a, that was a, obviously uh, a big feat to do that. But this was very different because we had to change behavior because we were going up against status quo and mostly because the sales cycles in these big traditional organizations are so long. You know, right now, today, our sales cycles are still about 18 months for the enterprise sale. And, you know, very, very difficult to raise capital, especially because we had no revenue. And, you know, we're in Canada, which is it's diff- more difficult for startups to raise their early seed stage capital in Canada. And so, yeah, the first, the first couple of years were rough. We didn't have a lot of revenue. We didn't have a lot of traction. We had a pretty small team. We never raised a lot of money. We had some good angels that we never would be where we are today without them. But uh, it was definitely very difficult. I definitely surprised myself on how small amount of money I could personally live on and how how far I could make such a small amount of money stretch in the company too. And did you have any partners in the business early on? How big was the team? Were there any mentors or advisors? Yeah, I actually took a $12,000 loan from the Canadian Youth Business Foundation, and they required me to have a mentor. I was pissed about it. So I don't have a co-founder, and I guess you could consider me a little bit stubborn and that sort of thing. And I remember feeling so upset that they were going to waste my time and make me sit down for an hour every, I think it was every two weeks for the, you know, while the loan was outstanding with this mentor. And, you know, they're like, we'll match you with someone great. And I remember feeling so upset about it. And I met this guy and he was fabulous. So his name's Jim Latimer. And he mentored me and really, really helped me. And he kept me very accountable. So, and it was all about the cash. It was all about bringing revenue in. It was all about the real stuff you have to do to make a company work. It wasn't about theory. It wasn't about, you know, we did do some strategy, but he was good because it was really about, you know, what do you need to do in the next week before we meet again or next two weeks or next 30 days? And then let's write those 10 things down, email them to me. And next time we're together, we're going to go over those 10. And so, you know, while my instinct is you kind of feel like you're being babied a little bit in that process. And most entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because they're independent, they're confident, they're all these things. But having a mentor for me was, was absolutely invaluable. And it was someone who had built software platforms already, knew what it cost to build it and knew how hard it is to get people to change behavior, et cetera. So, and a very sales oriented sales focused mentor was really good for us because that's how we got through that lull of, you know, almost running out of money. Many times we, we didn't rely on raising a big uh, series a round. We just focused on sales. I want to stick with the mentoring thing just because I'm curious. It sounds like you were resisting having one a little bit. 
I know lots of entrepreneurs would love to have an experienced mentor early on. Why were you so resistant? Well, my, my biggest, my worst quality, which is probably my best quality too, is that I'm just so impatient. I don't like wasting time. So I'm, I saw it as a time waste to have to sit down, you know, drive 20 minutes out to this location to meet this person. You know, I think we had two hours booked off. And I remember thinking, this is half a day. I can't waste this time. I should be working on the business. And so, but I've always been working in the business. I've, I'm a very execution focused person. So the mentor kind of forces you to work on the business and step back a little, which is good. And I think because he was a good mentor, it absolutely wasn't a waste of time, but it, it could have been. So that, that was my instinct. I don't want to say there was only one mentor there. There was of course so many along the way that would give you, you know, lots of little tips. I think it's really good when you're starting out because you can admit that you don't know what you're doing and people will help you. So that's really good. I, I've also was very lucky because I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. So my parents were entrepreneurs and I sort of didn't realize it, but was being mentored for a long time at the breakfast table and all those different situations. My parents were fighting over cash flow and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I had them and I had, you know, all through university, I went through programs where I shadowed entrepreneurs and I tried out different business ideas and, you know, I went away one summer and, and taught entrepreneurship and worked with entrepreneurs. And so every, you know, I was constantly picking stuff up along the way. So I, I don't think, I think with most people, you have to commit to this lifelong idea. And, you know, my biggest thing is I read biographies like crazy of entrepreneurs and lots of other leaders and that kind of thing. And so I think you're picking up stuff everywhere, everywhere you go. But, you know, one real mentor that keeps you accountable and is about the execution and about what really has to get done, which when you're in your early days, I don't care what you say, it's all about cash flow and, you know, just getting through each next step, then I think that that's pretty invaluable. Your parents were entrepreneurs and then you said you went to business school. When did you come to terms that you would not work, say, the average corporate job and you'd really be an entrepreneur? I, I resisted it, actually. I had no interest in working in the family business or with my parents. I reminded them of that constantly throughout university. And I did get a job in, uh, I got a job, this marketing advertising job right out of university. But I thought it was the opposite of being an entrepreneur because we were interviewing, you know, political leaders and that sort of thing for these country reports. There were inserts into magazines. And so I really liked political science and that's what I took as my undergrad before I went and did the business program at Ivy. And so mm -hmm. I sort of thought this was an anti-entrepreneur job, but my compensation was a hundred percent commission based. You know, I was really, we did the interviews and then we were unleashed to sell advertisements for these, these inserts. And it was very entrepreneurial. I thrived in that environment. And so I just couldn't escape it. I don't think. And then my, my first startup was, was perfect because it was almost kind of like entrepreneur training wheels where, you know, I was able to get a contract and my parents helped me kind of navigate the government contracting world and figure that piece out. But then I was on my own. It was my own company. I had a hundred percent of the shares and I went down and started it, but I also got some support along the way because it was a market and it was a manufacturing process that they were kind of familiar with. So it was kind of the best of both worlds in that sense. I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> When yeah, did I know I was going to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I I think I resisted it along. When I was at Ivy, 
and I graduated in 2007 and the dream was to be an investment banker. Everyone wanted to be an investment banker or a management consultant. And I went to management consulting interviews and it was a horrible, I, I bombed them so badly and I, it just didn't fit. And I felt like an outsider it wasn't popular or cool to be an entrepreneur then at all. And then I went and did this weird advertising job and in 2008 financial crisis hit and most people lost investment banking jobs and they were all looking into other stuff, including entrepreneurial ventures. So I think it's, it can be difficult for, you know, for students when something can be in vogue. And for me at the time, entrepreneurship definitely wasn't. So going back to your experience in business school, can you directly attribute anything that you learned from that experience to what you're doing now in your entrepreneurial life? And if so, what are those things? Yeah. I mean, of course you, you never know exactly what is contributing. And I, uh, I absolutely believe that there was a lot of stuff throughout the business program that, uh, for instance, I, I like the case method. I think the case method for teaching business to students is really good because you have to be, you put yourself in the leader's position. You know, what would you do if you were this person, if you were in this position? And I think that is more realistic and more real life than reading a textbook and, you know, understanding hardcore calculus and, you know, a bunch of stuff that you might not use. So I think there's the case method was really good. I'm really grateful that I took all the accounting classes and all the basic boring stuff that you really, you need a good, strong financial foundation as an entrepreneur. You, you need to understand and know your numbers and you really, you know, you have to be the one building the models. You have to know how they work. You, uh, so I think having that foundation is really important for anyone that goes into entrepreneurship. I don't think you have to go to business school to learn it. The one thing you don't need is for sure is I don't think you need the letters, right? You don't need the fancy MBA necessarily. If you can, if you can learn your fundamentals in a couple of years, then, uh, then I think you're good. A lot of people say business school is about the connections too. And I think for sure a little bit, but there's lots of successful entrepreneurs that haven't, uh, gone to formal, gone through formal business programs. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your hiring practice. What do you look for in a candidate say beyond the university degree or the letters, as you say, and what's the hardest thing about the hiring process? I don't look at letters at all. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty sad. Some of my best employees don't have university degrees at all. And, uh, you know, just because you've got an MBA doesn't mean that you're definitely going to get paid more. It's about the value Mm -hmm. that you're bringing back into the company. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of young people out there that have been sold a dream that doesn't necessarily translate, definitely not in the entrepreneurial world. It might in the more traditional corporations. So I don't, I don't think a, uni- a fancy university degree with a lot of letters and all that stuff directly translates all the time and directly with definitely in, in entrepreneurial environments. So I, I'd have to say the hardest thing for me, the hardest thing I do now as we scale and grow and the team is the one doing so much of the work now is identifying the right people. And when you interview them, really trying to figure out how this person's going to work out. Because some of the best interviews I've had and I've gone on to hire those people, they, they didn't work out at all. And some of the people that I wasn't crazy about and I thought, well, let's put them on probation, see what happens. And they really work out well. And what it tends to come down to is attitude and culture is really where I try to identify it. So it's, it's really in somebody, somebody has to want it badly. There has to be some reason. So, you know, I've had, I've had some young people that I've brought in that, you know, they maybe 
have been funded by their parents and, you know, their parents are paying their rent. And so they don't really, there's nothing, and that might not be the source of it, but it, there's nothing where they, they don't have to make it work. They don't, they, if they don't get the commission, they don't, it doesn't really kill them. They're still going to, their lifestyle won't change. Whereas you get some other people that, you know, they're really trying to prove something. They're really trying to make this. It just depends on the, to me, that's been the big differentiator is when you come in, how do you, how do you approach things and how bad do you really want it? How bad do you want to accomplish this? Okay. So you mentioned the most important things boil down to attitude and culture. How do you filter for that? Is it a gut feel thing? Well, my COO has been very good. Like COOs are in putting a process together and having sort of common questions where multiple people, when they do the hiring, they can contribute to it. So there kind of is a process. We have specific questions you ask about, you know, how you handled certain failures that you've had and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of it still is gut feel. And the problem with your gut is it can definitely be wrong. For me, the way I've, the only thing that's worked, unfortunately, because it's a bit messy, is you try to bring them in for a trial, or you try to bring them in for a month and say, you know, let's see if, if you can get this done. And if they are even willing to do that, then it usually means that they're, that they really want to make it work. Okay. I want to take a quick right turn. What if someone wants to try their hand at creating something, uh, testing an idea or doing a startup and they're currently employed full time? How would you recommend that they go about doing that? So I'm a fan of them doing it on the side to start. A lot of people say, I mean, if you're going to go raise money from investors and do a startup, you need to be doing that 100% full time. I've been making investments in startups the last year, and there's already been a couple that have failed. And the reasons have been that that entrepreneur is not 100% focused. So once you take real money from real investors, you know, you raise a proper round, you need to do that full time. But I'm all I'm a big fan of lots of people that are in full time jobs, and they need that job rely on that job to make their rent payment or whatever to Mm -hmm. do a bunch of tests on the side. So, you know, can you build a little bit of of a beta of what your idea is and, you know, walk out onto the street and ask somebody that is in that target market, you know, will you give me $10 for this or, or whatever the idea is. So to play around with it because everyone's idea changes so much. My first idea of what OMX would be is just so different than what it is today because it's evolved so much based on, staying very close to our user base and really understanding where their pain points are and how painful it is in those points. So, okay, that person did tell me it's painful, but you know, you don't find out until you ask them for money if it's painful enough for them to pay for it to go away. So, do you know, do you have a slight toothache or or rip it out right now and I'll pay I'll give you $1000 to do it. So, you need to you need to test those thresholds about you know, they they told me it was something that bothered them, but is it something that they will pay for because by changing it, it's going to dramatically bring them more value in a dollar amount that's more than the amount that they've given you? Mm-hmm. So all that to say, I would recommend to somebody who's looking to test out new ideas, I would recommend that they run tests, they talk to potential users, they actually ask them for money for the idea to see if they would pay to use something like that. And try to get as much information as they can so you're not you're not doing that in your first couple of weeks. And just get prepared to do whatever you think the next step is. It might not always be raising money. There's lots of startups that, that do well and they don't go through the traditional seed, series A, et cetera. 
And thinking about that same employee, say they wanted to stay within the organization, but they want to get their idea approved. How would you advise a junior employee, say, to run that idea up the food chain if they want to get something going? How would you recommend that that junior employee get noticed or get their idea noticed? Yeah, that's a great question. And we have trouble with that, even getting adoption of OMX within large organizations where we'll have a junior employee that's excited about it. They're usually younger and they love technology. And then to get them to get our idea through their own bureaucracy or systems organization is probably our one of our biggest challenges. So I, uh, I understand the question you're asking because I face it all the time as we try to grow our business by selling to large organizations. I think it's about doing the return on investment. So I think at the end of the day, of course, people matter. And of course, relationships matter within organizations and how much people can sway different people. But if you can build a really good case for return on investment and you can get the ear of a CFO or somebody in that realm who really cares about, who thinks there's some risk of not doing it or there's some big financial gain of doing it, then I think you you stand a chance. So for instance, when we got started, we, you know, OMX stands for Offset Market Exchange because we help companies manage offsets. Offsets are legal requirement to offset some of your procurement spend in a local economy in certain parts of an economy. We thought for sure that the offset managers were going to be the buyers. Well, what we found Mm -hmm. out is that wasn't really always the case. They would like it. They would admit that it would make their job easier. But we had to build the return on investment case, usually to somebody in a role called capture, which is trying to capture a big business development, a big sale. So that person was either going to win or lose often a billion dollar deal based on how good of a job they did on this. And and they had a real budget. So that was kind of a carrot. If you use this, you have a higher chance of getting that deal. And then the other area has been the CFO where they've got legal obligations and penalties they have to account for if they don't fulfill these offsets. And so they feel the risk and, and the fear of not doing it. And so for them, the the ROI of not doing it could be detrimental by having you know manual processes to manage this kind of stuff. So you, our success has been in really figuring out what that ROI is. So how much are they paying you and how much more are they going to get in return? And then finding the person who's either going to gain a lot from it or lose a lot from not doing it and trying to get to those people within the organization and getting to someone who has a real budget too. There's a lot of parts of an organization that are cost centers that are not usually assigned additional budget on top of their, you know, standard salaries and cost to run that department and maybe some travel and that kind of thing. They don't usually have extra budget for innovative solutions or you know, new ideas. So it's and every organization is different too. So it's it's really about navigating the complexity of of how the organizations work, how the budgets are set up. I always refer to them as colors of money. So. You know, mm-hmm. where do we, where can we find CapEx money and who has that, who has the right to sign off on that, et cetera. When's the year got end? It. You got to work around companies year ends, their budgets. So there's, there's, it's, it's obviously very complicated, but I, uh, I do believe in, in the ROI element of, of the argument uh, as much as possible. All right. Shifting gears to awards. Last year, you won Canadian woman entrepreneur, entrepreneur of the year in 2017, what changed in your life after you won this award and how meaningful was this for you? I don't think a lot changed, but it it was it was meaningful. It definitely was. It was the same 
year that we, or same week that I was signing also our partnership to try to drive more procurement opportunities to women-owned businesses. So it was kind of neat timing with that regard. But it's it's crazy how fast it can happen from the time that I started Omex to you know being the Canadian National Women Entrepreneur Award. Uh, that was only five years, almost six, maybe five, five and a bit. So it can it can happen really quickly, which is pretty exciting. It really takes a village to to build an entrepreneur, though. So when those types of things are happening in your mind, you're just going oh my gosh, there were so many people kind of along the way. Like you don't want to have an Oscar speech where you where you thank a whole bunch of people, but in your head, you're really going, this is all because of, you know, that mentor I never wanted to meet or that angel investor that, you know, believed in me when he really shouldn't have. I don't know what he saw and all the other people along the way, you know, service providers that agreed that we could, that we didn't have to pay them until we got some angel investment in. And there was just so many people. And I think it's really cool that in the last, in Toronto anyways, it feels like the startup community has gotten so much bigger and there's so much more awareness around it. And it's, you know, the cool factor has gone up for young people to work in startups. You know, I went to Startup TO and spoke and there was 800 people there and there wasn't even Startup TO when I started Omex. So I, I think the community has gotten bigger. And so getting that award, that's what was going through my mind. I remember thinking, it's just so crazy how they'll give an award to one person, but that there was just so many people involved in that process. After you won the award, do you feel some sort of personal responsibility, say to other female entrepreneurs specifically? Yes, I definitely feel, I definitely feel a big responsibility for, for all young entrepreneurs that are getting started, especially the ones that are really serious about it and are going to put the time and effort into it. So I, one of the challenges I have is, how much time I can devote to that because you could spend your full, you could spend, you could go full time on that. Just sort of reaching out and helping people in the early days when they're afraid and they're running out of money and they don't know what to focus on and all that sort of thing. So I definitely, definitely feel it for all young entrepreneurs and then women as well. The stats, the stats are still really not very good, especially when it comes to raising venture capital. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not even on the good side of that equation. We were unsuccessful in raising venture capital. And so, but I think, there's a conversation around it now. There's more awareness. There's specific funds with money put aside for women entrepreneurs. And so we're getting a lot of traction. And yes, I, I, I absolutely do feel it. And But I am excited by the momentum. And I, I think there's a lot of people on the, on the bandwagon to help. And like we said, there's so many people that have to be involved in that. Sounds cheesy to call it a journey, but it's true. There's just so many people that have to be involved from the very beginning you know, through to, you know, even now I, there's still lots of help that I need. It's just a different type of help. And now are you selectively mentoring people? How are you contributing to the whole movement of entrepreneurship given all the constraints on your time? Yeah, I've been doing public speaking probably one a month, especially in schools. I've been investing in startups, not a lot of cash because I don't have a lot of cash. It's tied up in the business, but I've made eight investments in very early stage startups. And, you know, part of that investment is my time where I say, you know, I'm, let's set up a call, you know, every couple months and go over stuff that you need help with and I'm happy to help you. And then it, it sounds know, almost like too efficient or cold, but a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startup uh, entrepreneurs really want to take you for lunch or have coffee, that sort of thing. But I'm at this point where I'm saying, let me know exactly what you need help with. I'd love to help you. Just 
just send me some points and if I can make some email introductions or if you're looking for areas, organizations to talk to about raising capital, or so, just let me know and I can respond. So I'm trying to be able to help people while also acknowledging that it's incredibly busy with everything at OMX and driving that growth. That's interesting. You mentioned they have to be really specific. I imagine you're getting tons of requests for coffee, speaking engagements, et cetera. So how do you know what to say yes to? And if that's really not the right way to ask the question, how do you decide when to say no to things? Uh, lately, I have to say no to a lot of stuff only only because I have to be aware that you know my full, full-time job is building OMX. So I don't have the luxury of being on the, on the other side of an exit or something where I'm you know just able to give back all the time. But I, I think you can make a lot of headway in an efficient way. So instead of yeah. going for coffee, I mean, I'd love to get to know people and know about your families and where you live and all those things are really great to know. But right now, what's on fire? And is there something like, is there someone you've noticed that I know in LinkedIn that you want me to reach out to? Or I have lots of friends that say, I have this friend and they're starting a company and they really need to pick your brain. It's like, well, what's the, what's the immediate thing that is really bothering you and let me if you if you feel comfortable I'm happy to look at your deck or look at whatever you're doing. So I think it's just about being really realistic about about your time and about all those pressures and you for me I've I used to work not Saturdays but definitely every Sunday I would go into the office and I'm getting to a point now where I have to be really protective of the downtime to not burn out. And so I think you you get to know yourself and when you put yourself in lots of stress, you kind of start to learn where your limits are. And then you start to say, well, if this is going to work, I have to figure out how, how to divide that time. And, you know, it's, it, I love, I love the comment somebody said to me once, if you want to know what somebody's priorities are, look at their calendar, where they're devoting their time is, is, is pretty much exactly what their priorities are. And so I'm pretty conscious of all the stuff that I have to do with building this company. You mentioned stress. So you're on two advisory boards. You're a commentator on the CBC. You're on the next gen Dragon's Den. How do you know when your stress level is, say, at an eight or a nine? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. I, I, I think that's probably one of the most important jobs of entrepreneurs, higher performing, high performing leaders, et cetera, is you, you just have to know that. You have to learn how to, how to identify that. If you're not sleeping, if uh, to me, lately, uh, my high school yearbook quote was that I'll sleep when I'm dead. Now I'm trying to, it's really about like, am I getting enough sleep? And I'm laughing because even next week I'm flying to Seattle, then I'm coming back to Toronto, going straight to Germany. And so I'm sure there's going to be low sleep just on that one <laughs> jaunt. But I think you know, but I think you have to plan for it in advance. And so I I do a ritual on Sunday nights where I look at the week ahead and then the month ahead. And I say, all right, this is unrealistic. This is just, I ha there has to be one flight that gets cut. Somebody else can go on that trip or go in that meeting. Or you kind of step back and look at the week and you say, I need burnt out by Thursday. I know it. I can't do that dinner. It's not that critical and someone else can go. So I think you start to get a good feeling for, you know, do you need two nights off a week where you're not at an event? And, you know, once a month, should you take, you know, a week where you're not on flights you know, in international locations, like everyone's got their own metrics and they've got their own stuff and people have different personal commitments as well too. And so, and that's fine. Everyone's got their own, you know, they know the speed that they're operating at or they know what makes them happy. But for me, I've figured out that balance. And I think it's a misperception that 
you're only successful if you're burnt out and you work every single weekend and, you know, you're not happy and you're on the verge of, you know, personal destruction, like people brag about it. And, but I, I don't think that's right. I think that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, there's no overnight successes. Like I've been at this entrepreneurship gig for like 11, 12 years now. And so you can't, you can't go at top speed that whole time. You're going to be in a crunch week where you have a lot of travel or you have a bid that's due to the government or a client or, and you know, you're going to miss some Christmas Eve activity sometimes because you're finishing something. I mean, I'm thinking a lot. Two years ago, I spent boxing day all the way through New Year's on site with a client in Brazil, but you know, and so there's going to be times where it's the only time you can do it, but you have to look at the step back with the big, big picture and really get a feeling for that. I know we're bumping up on time. So just a few last questions and I'll, I'll let you go. What's one habit that you do now in your routine, say that 10 years ago, you would have never expected doing? <laughs> say no more often. I used to say yes to everything, which was probably a good thing at the time because you're open to every opportunity. But Saying no is actually a sign of saying yes to something else because you're going to replace that time with something else. So I had to learn that and it was very hard for me because I am always trying to please people. And so I'm always trying to help them or accommodate or attend their events or, or whatever. But you no, know, saying no is, is new to me and uh, I probably only learned it a few years ago. Yeah, I recently read something that I thought was a great filter for deciding whether or not you want to do something. If you get asked to do something and you could rank that opportunity from one to 10, but you could not give it a seven, it ends up helping you make that decision even more clear because six is sort of like barely passing. And if it's an eight, it's sort of potentially very exciting. So I thought that was pretty unique. I really like that because unfortunately the filter most people use is, is that night free in my calendar? And I've always used that. And the thing is, people will ask you to do something six months ahead of time, and you will be free that night. And then as that week starts coming to close, you've got deals you need closed by Friday, and you can't believe you've blocked that whole afternoon or night is filled up with something that isn't going to move the big things forward. When you reflect back on your trajectory, if you could look at one specific thing that you reflect on and say, I should have done that one thing differently... I guess this is sort of another way of asking if you have any regrets, but I want to be more specific. Can you think of that one thing that stands out for you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I regret, I regret always being in a rush. Like I always look back and say, I was in such a rush all the time. My first startup was in the Dominican Republic. And I mean, wow. they used to laugh at me. Yeah. That we were doing offshore manufacturing for a government uh, client. I was always huh. in a rush and I regret it because I think I missed, you know, some of the fun stuff because I was pushing so hard, but that's also probably the reason why things worked out is because I was driving a culture that was manana manana to like, no, we're delivering that shipment today. And I don't care how late you're staying, all that kind of stuff. So I do regret it because it is a long haul. I mean, somebody who wants to get into entrepreneurship, it can't be, let's build this thing and we'll flip it in a year and then we'll retire it. The mentality has to be it's like an Ironman train, like someone who's training for an Ironman. You have to enjoy the training because there's so much of it. That's the bulk of it. Like the high of completing the race is 10 minutes of, you know, the years and many, many thousands of hours that you're going to put into the stuff that's up front. So I think that analogy for me is really relevant to entrepreneurship that you really have to enjoy that process. 
and it's it's important to to have a sense of urgency but i think people have to be i think it's important to enjoy it as well and don't get me wrong i've of course enjoyed it but i was always in a rush i needed this to happen by the end of this year and this in the next two months and all that kind of stuff so i think i think that's one thing that that i'm trying to work on that you can you know you can do both Great answer. Thanks, Nicole. I think this is actually a really good place to stop. You're so right about the love of the process. If you don't love the process, you're probably not going to care much about the outcome. I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. I really sincerely appreciate your time and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Hitsu Socks, artist design socks for everyday life. Amazing designs can be found at HitsuSocks.com. That's H-I-T-S-U Socks.com. And our good friends at Unbound Merino Stylish, simple merino wool apparel that can be worn for weeks without ever needing a wash. More at UnboundMerino.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.